the principal and the personal. The text this morning is found in John chapter 4, verse 24. And the scripture says, For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So I want you to see this morning that there are two primary defined characteristics of our worship. It should be true, and it should be spiritual. There should be a form in the truth. There should be structure. What Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said that there are people who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. It's not enough to have a form that's dead and not filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to have the form, the structure. I need to have the truth of God's Word, but I also need to have the in, in filling, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. If you believe that, say amen. All right, one thing that I want to bring this morning, the Bible is a living story about God who desires a real relationship with us through truth that informs and spirit that transforms. You got that? So the Bible, we're talking about God's Word, we're talking about truth. The psalmist said, Thy Word is truth. So when we hold up the Holy Bible, we're looking at 66 books written by over 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years, all with the central theme, and that is the redemptive story of one man, one God-man, and his name is Jesus. He is Yahshua HaMashiach. He is Jesus the Messiah, not only of the Israelite people of the Jewish nation, but he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. His name should be called Jesus. It says in Matthew, the angel of the Lord said, for he shall save his people from their sins. His literal name means Savior. It comes from the Hebrew Yahshua, which means salvation. And so Jesus' very name is salvation. He is that to us. He is that in us. He is that through us. The Bible is a living story about God who desires real relationship with us through truth that informs and spirit that transforms. Pray with me this morning. Spirit of the living God, we pause in this moment and we lean into you. We ask you, the teacher, the comforter, the guide, our strength, our peace, our protection. Holy Spirit, you're our shield, our buckler. You're our deliverer. We lean into you and we ask you today to do what only you can do. I thank you for the words that you put into my mind and into my heart and in my mouth this morning. I ask that I speak even as... The writer of 1 Peter says, as the oracles of God. God, touch my lips. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I know, O God, that apart from you, I can do absolutely nothing. But God, I'm grateful to say this morning that I'm not apart from you, that Christ is in me and that I am in Christ. Thank you for a congregation that leans into you and trusts you Lord, as we even celebrated your sacrificial shed blood and your shared blood that we, we took this morning and your broken body for us, thank you that we are in covenant with you and we walk with you. And because we are in Christ, we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you will be the ears and the eyes and the hearts and the lives of your people and you will open us to understanding. Lord, give us wisdom, give us guidance. 
Fill us with the Holy Spirit that causes our faith to grow and our courage, Lord, to arise. We'll be careful to give you the praise because all the glory is due your name. In Jesus we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. The woman at the well. The woman at the well. John chapter 4. Interesting character. The scripture says she's a woman of Samaria. <laughs> I remember the English preacher who tried to crack a joke in an American congregation one time and said she must have been a really large woman if she was a woman of Samaria. And that's about the kind of response he got right there. Samaria was the portion of Israel that basically split off. The tribes had a division. It was not a civil war, but it was definitely a disunion. After Solomon built the temple and he passed in the lineage the dynastic succession from Solomon to his son Rehoboam, there had been so much of a press on the people to build the temple of God. They were involved in the labor. They were giving just sacrificially to the construction of, the, of God's house. And it was a generation of people that were worn out. And Jeroboam, who was the general of the army, came to, to Rehoboam and said, if you will speak kindly to this people they will bow before you and they will be the very so dedicated, so loyal. But your father pressed them and they need to rest. And so Rehoboam, wanting to assert his authority, chose to listen to the younger advisors instead of to the older generation. How many of you know we need both? We need the energy of the youth and we need the wisdom of the aged. And at this time, he did not listen to his proven advisors, and he took only the unproven youthful words that lacked great, had a great degree of missing wisdom. And he basically said, you go back and tell those folks that my father tested you with whips and I will test you with scorpions, and my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. So Rehoboam goes back to Jeroboam, who reports it to all of Israel, and they basically just pull back. It's a secession. It's, it's like South Carolina after Fort Sumter has been attacked. And South Carolina pulls out of the United States of America and the Civil War begins. So Jeroboam arises to become the king of the ten northern tribes. The ten tribes split to the north and the two tribes to the south. And you have... Judah and Benjamin around the area of Jerusalem that remained faithful to the Lord. When you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, you find the histories of kings who would arise and they would greatly depart from the commandment of God. And the scripture would always say over and over and over again that they did not walk in the ways of their father David. And there was great decline. There was kind of a $10 word, there was declension. They, they would fall away from the Lord. There was outrageous backsliding. They built altars that, that served the gods of Baal and Molech, basically sacrificing their children to the fire god, to Ashtar. And they were all sex cults, which is so much a, an implication of what's going on in our culture today. We are sex-saturated. Everything is sold and marketed with sexuality. 
on television, on the media. And it's just everything, it takes everything that we can do as Christian men and women to, to step back from this and go, I am not going to let myself be baptized and marinated in this nonsense that is driving this consumer spirit in America. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching so good. And so the ten tribes to the north are lost in all of this mixture, in this syncretism, in this hanging on to the promise of the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they just went around and played in all the sex cults of Baal and Asher and Molech, doing unspeakable things. But those in the south, in Judah and Benjamin, remained faithful. They had some, they had some spits and sputters. They had some trips and falls. But there would always be, when you read about what's going on in the southern two kingdoms, there's continuous, there'll be a revival. They'll fall away and God will call them back and they'll have an outpouring and God will raise up a Jehoshaphat and the Spirit of God will be poured out and God will raise up a, an eight-year-old king by the name of Josiah and the Spirit of God will be poured out. And there was always an openness. Samaria is these northern kingdoms. Man, I wish I had time. The Holy Spirit's reminded me of stuff that I didn't preach in the first message but it's that, in, that interesting connection between ten and two. You know, there were ten kingdoms that weren't faithful, and there were, there were ten tribes that weren't faithful, and two that were. There were ten commandments that are impossible to fulfill. Jesus gives us two that he does through your heart. Love God and love people. Isn't that amazing? When, when Moses sent the children of Israel with spies to spy out the land, there were ten that came back with an evil report, and two that said, sit down, we can do it, our God is well able. Who I'm preaching this morning. I didn't, even, I didn't even think about that in my first message. It's You know what time it is in the Spirit? It's 10 to 2. There are 10 that will always tell you you can't, but there are 2. Love God, love people. That is the commandment of God, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's spirit and truth. That's the 2 you got to have right there. Hallelujah. I chased a rabbit, and I may pay for it, but that was good. Man, that just came to me in that moment. I hadn't thought of that stuff in years. Listen to this. She was a woman from Samaria. She's a woman. That's the first thing. Jesus stopped to talk to a woman. Men didn't do that in those days. Jewish traditional people, men, with, because of fear of kind of any kind of uh, evil being spoken against them, didn't address a woman in public. And women were considered to be lower than, second-class citizens. And Jesus comes along, and he is the first women's liberation prophet that ever came on the scene because he lifted women up alongside men to show that we together are co-heirs of the grace of God, that we both are image-bearers of the nature of God. Though broken and marred in sin, in Christ now there is neither male nor female. There's neither bond nor free, Scythian nor Greek, black or white, red or yellow. In Christ, that doesn't matter anymore. Jesus stops at Sychar. He talks to a woman of Samaria. Jewish people wouldn't have anything to do with the Samaritans because they were considered to be half-breeds because they had fallen from the true covenant of worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jesus saw a human being that was broken, carrying the image of God, but broken and needed the love of God. An old covenant spirit bearing the tin that says it's impossible is given way to uh, a new covenant, love God and love people. And he walks on the scene and Jesus is not afraid to do what Jewish tradition says you don't do. This woman was out there drawing water in the middle of the day. And let me just tell you, that's not the time you draw water. You go draw water for the house early in the morning. But this woman didn't draw water early in the morning because she had a bad reputation and all the other women would whisper and wouldn't have anything to do with it. They wouldn't speak to her. 
So she's out there at Jacob's well drawing water in the middle of the day. Jesus comes up and he asks, he says, woman, give me to drink. And she's absolutely shocked. She says, aren't you a Jew? I'm a Samaritan. How, why are you even talking to me? Jesus' own example is that he is one that reaches out to the marginalized people. He, he is showing her that, that to be a true Hebrew, to be somebody who loves the, 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 the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is not somebody who's going to look down with a spirit of supremacy. In those days, a lot of Jewish people thought they were the best in the whole world and everybody else was second-class citizens. Kind of like we do here in the South. Kind of like white folks who look at anybody else that has a little bit more melanin in their skin. They're a little bit darker. Maybe they're Hispanic or they're African-American. I mean, you know, God doesn't respect that kind of nonsense because all of us are his children. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give him praise. Jesus loves the marginalized. He reaches out to those that are the least and the lost and the helpless and the hopeless. She says, why do you ask me for water? He says, you know something? I've got some water that if you drink from, you will never thirst again. The well of water that you're drawing from, you're going to have to drink from it from now on. And she starts talking about their fathers who dug the well and the difference between the Samaritans and how they worshipped and how those in Jerusalem worshipped. And Jesus, you know, basically answers her quickly but won't take time to argue. And Jesus says something about her husband and she says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you've spoken well because you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. So that means that she's with the sixth man and none of them have ever satisfied her life, but she's standing in the presence of the seventh man. And something is about to be answered that's satisfied down in her heart that has never been satisfied before. She's not going to get satisfied until she meets the seventh man and takes a drink of the water of life that he's going to give to her freely. Come on, somebody. And she he looks at him and asks him questions about worship, and Jesus responds with the text that we said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so she not only learns a principle here, but she meets a person. Truth is alive. Truth is not just a dead doctrine. Truth is something that with the spirit can transform your life. Jesus said in John chapter 8, you shall continue. If you continue in my word, you will be my disciples indeed and you will know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Truth has that ability to transform your life and that's only when it's with the Spirit because apart from the Spirit, it can be dead letter that will kill. How we treat the marginalized, the heart that we have to reach the people of the Delta, regardless of color, regardless of lifestyle. We have to be willing to throw our arms around anybody that God sends through that door, the, the addicted, the mentally challenged, the sexually depraved, broken, beaten, bruised, stolen from by Satan. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy. The precious mother who in a moment thought that the best thing for her to do was to abort her baby and now she's under the grief and the shame and the guilt. Thank God for a people that can reach out to every one of these different kinds of circumstances. Or maybe you were born under a church pew, but you've got the spirit of an elder brother. You know the truth, but you don't have any of the spirit. 
Nothing worse than churchy folks who know all about church and can talk to you about doctrine but don't know the author who wrote the book. God, help us all. We need, a, we need a living baptism of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. Come on, put your hands together. The Bible is a living story about God who desires a real relationship with us through truth that informs and spirit that transforms. I remember as a young man grew, growing up in a Pentecostal church, and it was all about experience, and I befriended some wonderful guys that were solid evangelical Bible guys, came from a Baptist background, but we're in a non-denominational kind of Bible church now, and so I really just got hungry, and I had a Bible revival my first semester of college, and I read through, and I couldn't put it down. The Bible just came alive to me. And I, I would walk out of my, my, my dorm room every morning with a three-by-five card in my pocket, and uh, in between classes, if no one was around, I would be under my breath just muttering that scripture. That's what the word meditate means, and I would begin to just hide the word of the Lord in my heart because I knew that there was a call of God on my life, and the word came alive. And, and, and what I want to do is just for a few moments this morning inspire you to open the book and let the book open you and then open your heart to the Spirit of God. And let the Spirit of God fill those voids in your life that you're looking to medicate with whatever it could be, prescription drugs or alcohol or illicit sexual relationships or any kind of number of things that can put us in a state of brokenness. And not to put us on a religious treadmill where we've just always got to work and earn gold stars because God's not interested in any of that. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. Come on, somebody, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. I learned, I learned quickly that when I have all truth and no spirit that I dry up. And I learned that when I have all spirit over here in this camp and no truth, I blow up. <laughs> Get crazy out there with the spiritual experiences. But I also learned that when I have spirit and truth together, I grow up. How many of you know God wants us to grow up? Look at your neighbor and say, grow up. Don't dry up, don't blow up, grow up. God wants us to grow up. You know, too many times I, I meet folk that are highly intellectual and they, they, they can study the, the depths of theology of the word and they've built a fireplace that is majestic, but there ain't no fire in the fireplace. And then I get around other groups Man, then I'll tell you one thing. You're talking about fire starting. It's, it's like they'll burn the forest down. And it, that can be destructive. We need the beauty of, of the, the grounding and the structure of the Word of God that provides us the protection for the fire to be in. And it's, it, 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 it's the form of godliness, but the Spirit is what brings the power. The Spirit of God in our lives where we lean into Him and trust Him to do what He says that He promises that He will do. Because when you, when, you, when you have fire that is unrestrained, it'll burn houses down. It'll burn forests down. It'll bring destruction. But when you have a gorgeous fireplace and no fire in it, that's a shame. How many houses of worship this morning? Everybody's there except God. There's a fireplace, but there's no fire in the fireplace. Are you, oh, three people heard me. Thank you for the amen. When you've, when you've got a beautiful fireplace that's solid and it's safe, You've got theology that's grounded. It's built on the Word of God. And when you've got a, a fire that's been stoked, you can cook and you can feed people and you can heat the house and you can warm folks. And there's so much you can do with a great fireplace built on truth and, and the Spirit of God that's filling that fireplace with the presence of the Lord. 
We need both. We need spirit and truth. Everybody say spirit and truth. So how do you stay engaged with the word, Pastor? Let me just say this. I want to tell you right now, you can trust your Bible. You can trust your Bible. 19th century, 1800s, the, the, the authority of the Bible was literally attacked from every angle. The German school of higher criticism was the most famous one. Doubting, casting aspersions against the validity or the authenticity of who wrote it and was this even what was said, making challenges that nobody had answers for, challenging the historicity, that's the historical accuracy of the Bible, the veracity, that's a $10 word for the truthfulness of it. And I want to tell you, we waited just a few years and into the 20th century, there have been so many outrageous archaeological discoveries that have, that have taken place in the Middle East and in Israel particularly that have repeatedly verified the historical accounts of what's written in the Old Covenant regarding things like the Battle of Jericho. I remember when a Time Magazine article came out in the early 90s, and I have it in my files. I have literally, uh, they're like five filing cabinets that are filled with with uh, illustrations and things that I've pulled from magazine articles and all these things over the years that I've compiled and, and, and that I've read through and, and basically filed away. And, and besides having been a student of and read the, the magazine Biblical Archaeology Review for years, it becomes almost overwhelming when the media itself, the national media, reports on discoveries that verify the truthfulness of a particular account of the Bible. And they happen all the time. I hold two degrees in history. One is a graduate degree. And I want to tell you right now, from the little bit of training that I've had, we have more authentication, archaeological facts, artifacts that prove the veracity, the truthfulness, the historical accuracy of your Bible than any other culture that has ever been alive on the planet or in the history of mankind. But you don't hear that. You don't hear that in the, the public school system. You don't hear that very often on the media. But I want you to know with, for, without a shadow of a doubt, you can trust your Bible. Your Bible is God's Word. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Now, it amazes me sometimes when folk want to, I'm in the gym and I go as long as I can before I tell them that I'm a pastor. Because when I meet somebody, I like to just let them be who they are. Because when they find out I'm a preacher, they get religious on me. It's like the woman at the well. She's out here kind of being a little argumentative until he reads her mail and points out that, you know what, you said it right, that you don't have a husband because you've had five and the one you're with right now you're not married to. You're sixth. And it's amazing sometimes when, 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 when folk finally find out that I'm a preacher, all of a sudden they decide they want to argue about the rapture. Well, where do you stand on that? And I went, oh, wait a minute, I thought you told me you didn't even go to church. I, I remember a few years ago down in the old building where we had a female guest speaker one Sunday, and we had a dude in the church. He doesn't go here anymore. He left years ago. The Lord blessed us, blessed somebody else with him somewhere else. And he got so offended. Now, let me just tell you right now, I don't want to say this in a judgmental way, but his life was so jacked up and so messed up in so many ways, and we were loving on him, just walking with him, trying to be an encouragement to him. And he got up and he left because of his interpretation 
of, of women not ever speaking in church, being silent. By the way, I'm going to speak to that in this series. You may tell you which Sunday because I bet we have a crowd that day. Okay? And he got so upset that he would leave. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you who was speaking. It was my wife, Dawn. And he got offended and left. I, I'm not going to defend her because she was a woman of God and had the word of the Lord in her mouth. But it's crazy to me. I'm going, you know what? There are so many obvious areas that you're struggling with. What if you put your energy into letting the Holy Spirit and cooperating with the Spirit of God to deal with that instead of getting all up offended over something that you really don't have correct understanding of, what you think you know? It's crazy sometimes when folk find out I'm a preacher and I'm in the gym and they'll all of a sudden want to pick me on what I think about this and then argue with me. And I'm going, wait a minute, I thought you hadn't been to church in 20 years. So when, when did you become an expert? I don't say that. I want to. I want to. I, I, I want to lay hands on them in the name of Jesus suddenly is what I want to do. But I don't give in to the flesh. Somebody said, thank you, Jesus. Now, this is, this is what I want you to see. It's so critical that we stay engaged with the Word and we let the Word take us to Jesus. Because this whole thing is all about him. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. And let me just say, I want to take you wherever you are one step further so you dig into the Word and the Word becomes alive in your life and you open up to the Holy Spirit. And don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit because he is a gentleman. He's not going to take over your life and make you jump goofy and do stupid things that are going to embarrass you. Now, in my Pentecostal background, there was some, some nonsense that went on that folk claimed was the Holy Spirit, and with a little bit of training in the Word, I found out it was just their flesh. There was an attention-seeking spirit on them. They wanted to be up in the middle of everything, let everybody think they were really spiritual. And so I just want to tell you, the Holy Spirit is not going to jump goofy in your life and make you do weird things. Come on, somebody say amen. But He will teach you. He will guide you. He will show you. He will demonstrate the power that is in the Word of the Lord. Now, I don't just want to know about a Bible truth or a principle, but I want to meet the person that principle's been fulfilled in. Because when I can apply it to my life and I can obey it, then it transforms who I am. Oswald Chambers, who wrote the very famous My Utmost for His Highest, I read through a number of times in my early Christian experience Year after year after year, Oswald Chambers said this, five minutes of obedience is worth more than 10 years of study. Did you hear what I just said? Five minutes of obedience is worth more than 10 years of study. You can parse the Greek verbs. You can, you can declare the theological premises of your position. But until you actually start to apply that in your life and obey the word of God, it's not worth anything. It's not worth the paper it's written on. It is until I choose to walk by faith in what I have seen revealed by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, that's when my life starts to change. Just knowing about it doesn't mean a thing. Just mentally assenting to the fact that Jesus Christ came to save sinners doesn't mean you're saved. It's when you trust Him that your life has changed. It's when you lean into the Word and trust God for the principle that He's revealed and let the person who that has been fulfilled in, that's Jesus, show up in your life, then things begin to change. The Bible is a living story about God who desires a real relationship with us through truth that informs and spirit that transforms. Last point this morning, I want them to put up a little chart for me, but the, the principle is objective truth 
and subjective experience. Say that with me. Objective truth and subjective experience. Just like their, their churches that emphasize truth and the intellectual side, the, the, the mind-thinking side, there are other churches that emphasize the subjective experience, the feeling. These are thinkers, these are feelers. Which one of them are of God? Both. Why is one better than another? I need to do both. I need to think the thoughts of God and I need to feel the presence of God. Come on, somebody. I need to be a thinker and I need to think as God reveals his word to me. I need to be able to logically reason. I need to understand. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom with all thy getting, get understanding. Proverbs says, okay? Now, but I also need some application of the Spirit of God on what I'm thinking about. I can think about believing God for a miracle, but it's not until I begin to step out in faith that that miracle can even begin to line up to come into my life. So I recognize that there are times that I don't feel it that I've got to remember what I'm thinking. But I still need to apply and trust the Holy Spirit to do what is bigger than just an idea. Objective truth, subjective experience. Every objective truth in the Word has a subjective experience that the Spirit applies in the life of the believer. Think about this. Every objective truth in the Word has a subjective experience that the Spirit applies in the life of the believer. Otherwise, until it's happened in your life, it's meaningless to you. You can believe that Jesus saves sinners, but until you get saved, until you have the subjective experience of being born again, trusting and relying upon Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it's just an idea that has had no implication in your life. So every objective truth in the Word has a subjective experience that the Spirit of God applies to believer. Put up this, this chart for me, please. So I want to talk about this just for a few moments as I close this message. This is the last thing I've got. In the Old Testament, we see many things in principle form or in a promise, a prophetic picture, okay? We just came out of the provision series where God revealed himself to Abraham as Jeho uh, Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Yeri. And the ram is caught in the thicket. And we know that that ram became the substitute for Isaac, Abraham's son, that God had said, go to the mountain and sacrifice him. Just to show Abraham that he loved the God of the promise more than he loved the promise of God. That happened in Isaac's life. Now, that gets fulfilled when Jesus hangs on the cross and becomes the Lamb of God. But that gets applied to my life when I lean into Jesus and I say, be my Savior. Jesus, save me. Look, in the examples that I've given here, the, the principle and the promise, then we have when it is fulfilled historically in Jesus, and then we have when it has a personal application in the believer's life. There are just three things here that I want to give, and I may not even do all of them, but there are hundreds all over the Word, okay? The Passover lamb is revealed in Exodus 14. The children of Israel are leaving Egypt, and God shows Moses, the deliverer, tell every household, get a lamb for your house. Everybody say, a lamb for the house. In other words, every house has to have its own lamb. Let me tell you something. Jesus doesn't just save the nation. He saves it at one house at a time. 
You need a lamb in your house. You need Jesus, the Lamb of God, in your family. Come on, dads. God's called you to be the priest of your home. Bring the lamb into your house. Get the lamb in your hearts. Eat more lamb. Look at your neighbor and say, eat more lamb. Ooh, I, 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 my, my, my mind is running so many directions at this point. Let me tell you something. So many folk these days want to identify with the elephant as the GOP party or the donkey as the Democratic party. Let me tell you, as Christians, we're supposed to be the party of the lamb. Take the lamb, slit the throat, shed the blood, take a hyssop plant and strike the lentils of the doorpost. Every doorpost, the Bible says, that has the blood of the lamb on it, when the, avenge, the avenging angel comes, he will pass over your house. When the curse, the tenth plague of Egypt, all the firstborn of Egypt were killed, the children of Israel were protected because they had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. The avenging angel of death will pass over your life because you have the blood of the lamb applied to your heart. Well, that was a historical fact in Israel's life in Exodus 14. It became fulfilled historically in Jesus, John 1, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, that's great. So that whole thing in Exodus was pointing to the one lamb that would only be offered one time, once and for all. Not over and over and over again, but a once and final sacrifice. Somebody say amen. But so what? That's just a theological idea until it comes over here and he becomes Jesus, my Savior. Not just Jesus, the Savior of the world, but Jesus, my Savior. Are y'all hearing me this morning? Look, look, look. In the very next chapter of Exodus, they're marching through the wilderness. They don't have any water to drink and they're complaining. Moses, how can you bring us out here? <coughs> I need a drink myself. How can you bring us down here? We don't have anything to drink. And they come up on a, on a well, and the water's bitter, and so they name it Mara. Bitterness. <coughs> Can't drink that mess. And they're grumbling, and they're complaining. And the Lord speaks to Moses, and he says, go cut down that tree and stick the tree in the water. It's a picture of the cross of Christ. Go put the tree in the water. And as soon as Moses put the tree into the water, then the water was made sweet and they could drink and get refreshing. Well, that was fulfilled historically in Jesus Christ when he hung on the tree on the cross of Calvary. And all four of the Gospels tell the story over and over and over again. Jesus came through his suffering and death to sweeten the bitterness of your life of sin and to give you the sweetness of his presence. Come on. But it's not until... As a matter of fact, it was in that very place in Exodus 15 where God spoke to Moses and said, Tell the people to drink of this water. And he said, Tell them that I will not put any of the diseases of Egypt upon them. For I am their healer. I am Jehovah Rophe. I'm Yahweh Rophe. On the cross, the scripture says, He bore our sickness and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Now, you know what? Christ is the healer. But until you're sick and you trust him to heal your body, you don't know that by experience yet. It's an objective truth, but it has never happened in your life. How many of you know God wants to reveal himself to you in the middle of your struggle with sickness? Come on, somebody in the room right now. Hear that. 
that next line, Christ, my healer, 1 Peter 2.24 says he bore our sins in his own body on the tree and with his stripes we were healed. I love it because Peter points back to a finished work. It's already been done. Peter says we were healed. Everybody say past tense. So you know what? You can walk around being sick right now, but in Christ you're already well. You're already Because he is your healer. But until you hear that preached, Faith comes by hearing. You know what? When you preach salvation, people get saved. They get born again. When you preach Jesus is the healer, guess what? Sick folk get healed because they release their faith in God's ability to do. Because every objective truth in the Word has a subjective experience that the Spirit applies to the life of the believer. You can walk around in lack until you get a revelation that Christ is your provider. He will meet your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You hear that preached? Faith arises. You trust God, He shows up and shows out in your life. Every objective truth in the Bible has a subjective experience. At Pentecost, in Exodus 19, Moses came down off of the mountain. He has the law of God written on tablets of stone. It's hard and fast. It's an impossibility. It's an external law that we rebel against. Christ, literally, after He fulfills all the law, Fifty days after the resurrection, Peter stands up. The, the same fire and billows of smoke that's coming out of the mountain of Sinai that uh, caused the people to be afraid now set down upon the people like tongues of fire and a wind blows through the room and transforms everybody in there. And no longer are they afraid because what God wrote on tablets of stone at Sinai at Pentecost, he filled them with the Holy Spirit and he wrote it on the fleshly tables of their heart. Now the law of God is inside instead of outside. Now I don't have to go to church. I get to because I want to. I don't have to tithe because the law demands it. I get to because I'm so grateful that God has blessed me in every area of my life. I get to give. Are you hearing me? It's a difference. That happens when I have the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the law of God has been written on the tables of my own heart. All over the word, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples. God wants to open the book in your life and He wants to fill you with His Holy Spirit in ways that will absolutely astound you. God's not interested in ordinary, He wants to take your ordinary faithfulness and pour His extra into it and give you a life of extraordinary. Come on, somebody, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. The Bible is a living story about God who desires a real relationship with us through truth that informs and spirit that transforms. So this morning as I close this message, I just want to ask you, where are you that you know about something, but you don't yet know it by experience in your life? Who's sitting in this room this morning? Don't raise your hand yet. Who's sitting in here though, and you've heard your whole life that Jesus saves? But you, you know for a fact that it's never happened in your own heart yet. You've, you've tried to get the act together. You've tried to do things right or this way or the other. And let me tell you, you'll never succeed because it's an impossibility. We don't work for it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. God gives it as a free gift. And he does that when I say, God, I believe in my heart and I speak it with my mouth. I believe in Jesus. Be Lord of my life. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved very simple. Jesus died for the whole world. 
but it all depends on the people responding to that individually in your own heart. Are you hearing me this morning? He died to save you. He died to heal you. He died to bless you. He died to lead you. He died to provide for you. In all of these areas, I'd like you to bow your hearts and your heads with me, please, right now. Nobody looking.